You're listening to On The Record Offscript, the podcast. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm one of your hosts. For the past couple of years, the Offscript's team has been tracking down former politicians of Nova Scotia, former members of the Nova Scotia legislature, to be precise. Whenever we found one, we invited them to participate in an exit interview to reflect on their time in public life and the workplace they all served in, provinces. All of our interviews were on the record, but what we heard didn't sound much like the usual script. And it started with the presumption that you take on this bravado about always being right and the other side always being wrong. A lot of time and effort got spent on policy development. And a lot of people said, are you crazy? I mean, policy's not that important. You know? I should confess this is probably not good as a person who was in the cabinet for 10 years. We've all been there. We've all felt one way about our workplace, our boss, our coworkers. But when the opportunity to say something about it came up, we choked. We said something else, or perhaps more often, we said nothing at all. Because saying what we really think is hard, and it doesn't come without consequences. And sometimes those consequences can mean the end of an otherwise pleasant relationship. And when your job is on the line, that might not be a risk you're willing to take. Exit interviews are an effective tool for uncovering the uncomfortable truths in a workplace. The things you wouldn't necessarily say if you had to show up to work the next day. Or the next day. Or for the next year. What's the last job that you left? That voice you just heard? That's Sandra Hannibal. Sandra is one of the writers and co-hosts of the Offscript podcast. She recently spent some time on the streets of Halifax asking people about the last jobs they had left, and offered them an opportunity to have a mini-exit interview with her. What was, uh, what was the job? I was working in a children's clinic. It was the 1980s, the floodgates were opening on child abuse of a certain kind, and I'd been asked to handle it. And why did you leave? It had become uh, too stressful for my health. Okay. Really? You're, you're leaving your job tonight? I'm hoping to. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I work at and hopefully quitting within the next week or so. Okay. Yeah. Um, so if you share this with me, then you'd want to remain anonymous? or? Um, yeah, my boss probably wouldn't want to hear... Well, my boss isn't going to listen to the podcast. He's an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> So my main question is, is there anything that you would have, that you have not told your boss because you're in the job currently that you might tell someone else if you were not in the job? My, my complaint about it would probably be more or less that he runs the organization very poorly and sees employees more of a dollar value rather than actual people. What was the job? It was a call center. If your boss from that job asked you... What can I do to make this a better place to work today? Be brutally honest with me. What would that you he say? should reside. Exit interviews aren't just about bosses, though. They're about the whole workplace experience. What were the expectations coming into the job? And now that you're on the way out, were they reasonable? What things got in the way of your success? And what's the broader workplace culture like? They're meant to be a diagnostic tool for people, usually bosses, to identify problems and work towards solving them. About five years ago, results from the first ever set of exit interviews with former members of parliament were published. A new book about politics in Canada asks a pivotal question. 
How did one of the world's most functional democracies go so very wrong? It sheds light on some surprising truths about how it works or how it doesn't in our country. You've just completed a series of exit interviews with mm -hmm. 65 former members of parliament. I guess exit interviews is fairly standard procedure in the private sector, but I haven't heard of it done with members of parliament before. And virtually all of them describe the unrelenting power and influence of their own parties and how that power has minimized the role of the member of parliament and the voters they are supposed to represent. This is how the Liberal Party makes decisions. The Vancouver Sun has learned that the father-in-law of the member of parliament for Mississauga... Well, here's a quote from the report. If the MPs so deplore their own public behavior, even fearing that it would turn people away from politics, why would they not act to change it? I remember breathing a sigh of relief the very first time I read a report from the national think tank Samara. I know that's a strange way to react to reading a report, so let me explain. Samara is the organization behind the reports written based on exit interviews with former members of parliament. The ones that made national headlines first in 2010, then again in 2011, and then again in 2014 when they released their best-selling book based on those interviews. Here's my story. It's where I was coming from when I first heard about these exit interviews. I've been following and involved in politics for several years, first as an environmental activist, then as a student activist. My experience of being engaged in those movements left me feeling like there were more reasons to tune out of formal politics than there were to stay engaged. I wasn't alone. Many of my peers felt the same way. We were passionate about the issues we cared about, but the world of partisan politics and electoral politics, the places where decision-making power actually lives, was a messy and unwelcoming place. The closer we got to having an influence, the messier and more unwelcoming it seemed to get. Now, I breathed a sigh of relief when I first read Samara's work because it validated many of these feelings. Feelings I knew we weren't unreasonable for holding on to. Me and my friends, we weren't the uncompromising, idealistic brats that some people on the inside of the political system tried to paint us as for sticking to our guns. Our frustrations weren't that far off from the ones expressed by the very people we thought we were supposed to be frustrated with. Politicians. It made us rethink who was to blame, or if anybody at all could be blamed for the state of our politics. Louise Cockrum was one of those friends. Louise and I met in a class we were both enrolled in at university in Halifax. We were both working on graduate degrees, mine in education, and hers in political science. We talked about Samara's exit interviews and decided it would be worth doing a similar project here in Nova Scotia. I'm Mara's co-investigator on the project. I'm in Ottawa now, but I used to live in Nova Scotia, and okay. I still have like roots in the Maritimes, so it's I'm a PhD student at Carleton. I'm kind of like the academic advisor, project slash report writer, and also kind of editing some of the podcasts. And that's Louise introducing herself to one of the first people we spoke with about making this podcast. My name is Alison Lote, and I wrote a book called Tragedy in the Commons, Former MPs Speak Out on Canada's Failing Democracy. The voices of the journalists you heard a few moments ago were some of the news personalities that covered the research that Alison and her co-author, Michael McMillan, did with former MPs. We started exploring the idea of creating this podcast in earnest three years ago when we first spoke with Alison, who was then executive director of the charity Samara. Now, Samara was only about four years old at that time, and the MP exit interviews were their very first project. Uh, so we were thinking about doing something um, to help provide executive support and executive education, for lack of a better word, to elected officials. And uh, in the process of kind of thinking through that, somebody said, well, do we actually know what elected officials want and think? Like, has anyone ever asked them? And so that led us to say, well, yeah, actually, it might be useful to, uh, to try to do that. 
Uh, we then realized that current sitting elected officials are busy, they're constrained by political demands, partisan demands and the like, and, and frankly haven't had that space to reflect on what that experience was and how it could be better. And so that led us to the idea of an exit interview, which uh, is very common in other organizations, private and public, and a way to collect best practice and perspective on how an organization can improve. And we thought it was kind of a sad comment that they had never been done. And you know what we argue is one of the most important workplaces in the country, our parliament. Um, and so we set out to do that. And, uh, and I also thought it, frankly, it was kind of a clever, a clever way to get us started. We thought it was clever too. Allison and her co-author Michael ended up uncovering some previously undocumented but fairly universal feelings and concerns among former MPs about how politics was and wasn't working. They talked about politics and their career as if it was something that happened to them, as if they weren't there. They talked in a remarkably passive voice, as if they were the object and not the subject of the sentence. It seems so weird. These were 80 accomplished people who had actually been community leaders, who had had a successful career in something else, who went to Ottawa with the greatest of intentions, and they did accomplish things, of course, and when, when they got there, they lost their capacity for individual agency and ceded that to the party, and they resented it. So we asked ourselves, of course, well, if, it was, if you felt that way, if you didn't like it, why are you only telling us now, and why did you not do something about it when you were there? That's an excerpt from a talk Michael McMillan gave in Halifax two years ago at the Springtide Better Politics Awards, where he gave a keynote address unpacking the findings from the book he and Allison wrote together. You can hear Michael's full talk in an upcoming special episode of the podcast. Another upcoming special episode will feature our full interview with Allison Lote, where she reflects on the impact tragedy in the Commons has had in Canadian politics and elaborates more on this particular thought. Because any you know person who hears a politician say, "Oh, I never wanted to do this," says, you know give me a break, right? And so this actually, the, the narratives they use actually diminish their, uh, their profession or their calling in the eyes of the public, which is just so counterproductive. All right, back to Nova Scotia, back to Sandra. So why, why didn't you tell him that he should resign? Because it was easier just to leave. And you wouldn't say that to him now? No, God, no. <laughs> why not? Uh, well, he's kind of a sensitive sort, doesn't like criticisms, so. Oh, well, my boss wasn't somebody I could talk to. There, you know, he, he was not someone I could talk to. <laughs> so is there, is there something you would say to me today yeah. that you probably wouldn't say to your boss while you were working there that is, was relevant to the job? Well, I'm, I'm hedging a bit. There's lots I could say about it, but I wouldn't want to localize the things I would say to that particular setting, to that particular boss. Um, I'm more interested in dealing with the broad scale issues. What are the patterns? This, This is something that happens. It happens in a predictable way. Organizations typically don't respond well to it. So all bosses have their limitations, but I'm more interested in solutions that look at the bigger picture and those solutions I really can't localize them most of the time to a particular boss doing the best they can under difficult circumstances when, when what's going wrong is usually at a much broader level. We all have things that we're not willing to share at certain times and with certain people. For some people, it's out of fear of what might happen if someone in the workplace can't handle the truth. Like that employee whose boss is just kind of a sensitive sort. Who, for the record, is the same asshole that doesn't listen to podcasts. 
For others, like that last woman, naming the problem could easily be interpreted as blaming the person at the top, which might not be helpful or even fair. Speaking truth to power is admirable, but it's hard to do without hurting the person who holds it or making the problem worse. And sometimes it's easier to say, leave the job or wait for something better to come along than it is to speak up. Exit interviews work because they lower the risk of truth-telling. If working folk like these people were hesitant to share their hard truths from their jobs while they were still working at them, is it any wonder that our elected representatives, MPs, MLAs, and counselors, who live life in the public eye, don't share the whole story about their workplaces with us? So, we were curious what XMLAs would say if we invited them to an exit interview. We interviewed former MLAs in their living rooms, public libraries, and their gardens when the weather was nice. Hi, Mark. How are you? Nice to meet you. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Yeah, so basically what we typically do is work through, kind of like, ask you questions from before you were involved in politics, just yeah. to get a sense of you know, what your work and life was like before then. Yeah. And then kind of work You'll, you'll have a big enough sheet, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, obviously, the recorder's on, so everything we talk mm -hmm. about is on the record. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're not interested in answering a certain question, yeah. or if you'd like to share an answer to a question without the recorder on... Yeah. Um, well, you know, political parties are not even mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, they're they're an in, kind of an invention, in a way. Uh, mm -hmm. we, sorry, we... Birds, were we being dive-bombed? We told MLAs that if we used any of the remarks they shared off the record, we'd use a pseudonym, a made-up name. Very few people asked us to turn the recorder off. When an MLA asked us to turn the recorder off, it was because they just had some juicy gossip they wanted to get off their chest. Most of it was super specific to one person or one community or organization. Nothing particularly worth reporting on. We stuck to a loose set of questions, and there were certain questions we asked in every interview, but ultimately, we spent most of our time with each MLA focused on the things that they had the most energy and interest in reflecting on with us. Now, regardless of the questions we asked, or the specific topics and ideas that MLAs wanted to talk about, there were four themes that were woven through many of the conversations we had. Louise is working on a series of reports, written ones, that will be published in parallel to the Offscript podcast. Each of those reports will focus on a single theme, and these themes will also be woven throughout the podcast. The first of these four themes is the near-universal feeling of being lost and powerless in the face of whatever decisions were being made. I'm, I'm thinking nine out of ten it was a fait accompli. You came, you came in and, and were basically told that this was the way things are going to be. And, and you know, there were a couple of couple of issues, like I think the clear-cutting one and one about the cuts to education where um, the ministers themselves didn't, didn't go along with what the plan was going to be from the central office. And they weren't the minister any longer. This idea that MLAs don't feel that they have much of a say in the decision-making process in Nova Scotia, particularly backbench MLAs and cabinet ministers who don't hold um, kind of key positions like finance minister or minister of health. Well, yeah, I mean, well, you know, party discipline, it's a very peculiar thing. I mean, the, the, here's the argument in favor of it. The argument in favor of it is, um, uh, well, we're all part of a team, right? So if we're all part of a team, you know, you have to work, uh, work together. Uh, but as one of my colleagues said, um, you know, we're not on the team, we're on the bench. 
I mean, we're the, we're the people sitting on the bench, uh, and, and that's not quite the same thing. And uh, uh, that was, I think, Jim Boudreaux from, uh, from the Eastern Shore, uh, or, or Guysborough. I mean, he, and he was right. That was really the position of, uh, of, the, um, of most of the caucus, is we were on the bench. We weren't, uh, we weren't so much part of the team. We, were out there, we weren't out there skating and uh, passing the puck and, uh, and getting the chance to score or uh, actually participating. We were, we were just off on the sidelines there. And one of the MLAs we spoke to really characterized it well when he said that MLAs in Nova Scotia are treated as objects, not subjects. And what he meant by that was um, that MLAs don't really have much agency in the decision-making process. Backbench is the worst place to be, in my opinion. Backbench is, is really just, it's like your child, you know. Here to be seen but not heard, clap when they're supposed to clap, and really very limited uh, influence uh, unless you're willing to speak out like I did, but then the price is that you're not going to get into cabinet. So The second theme, dysfunction, speaks to the tone of debate in the House, particularly during question period. I, I hated the tone of the house and when you go in there uh, that's the atmosphere is very hostile and just the way that the house is designed with uh, the referee in the middle being the speaker the uh, government on one side and you got the two opposition you got the opposition and the third party on the opposite side looking at one another so it's it's designed to be confrontational. I didn't see the legislature necessarily as the uh, primary vehicle through which change happens. Um, I, it, it had the potential to be that, but it's, it wasn't a place of meaningful debate. It was a, it was a place of a tactical maneuvering uh, for political advantage uh, more often than it was anything else. Many MLAs told us that their colleagues and themselves, um, because they were very open about uh, their behaviour in the legislature too, behaved in ways that they would never even think of behaving in another workplace. When there is tension, when an election is approaching, when someone smells blood, it can get to be not very nice. Um, you know, the heckling, the physical presence and the heckling can be um, can be personal and just it can there can be times when it just goes over the edge and you just don't know when it's going to be. And as a teacher, <laughs> what teachers generally do when uh, there's an uproar is you just wait until the tone, until it settles a bit. So I had to learn to, to talk over a great deal of noise. And I found it, uh, I found that uh, distracting, a little bit problematic. I still had to, um, it, was, it was something that I didn't get used to doing. There was something about the legislature, especially during question period, that made MLAs behave in a certain way. Well, um, 
I thoroughly enjoyed Question Period, or at least I, I enjoyed it, you know, when I was asking questions <laughs> or, you know, able to answer questions. I, I, I really did enjoy that. And did you feel it was an effective kind of um, forum for discussion? And no. Policy? Why? Keeps you honest all the time. You know, the government, if you're doing something, ah, oh, shoot, you know, we do that, it's going to show up in public accounts. So, you know, they won't do that, you know. So it does keep you honest, but as far as accomplish anything, it really doesn't. Look at the blue nose. Now, it's worth underscoring that the kind of behavior we heard about isn't just behavior that happened in the past. As far as anybody paying attention can tell, it's just as concerning today. Maybe worse. This is a clip from Question Period on October 21st of this year, 2016. Well, Mr. Speaker, unfortunately, this government ignored the post-secondary education biggest attractors high tuition fees and student debts. The person asking the question is Sterling Beliveau, the MLA for Queen's Shelburne, and he's also the leader of the NDP in the House of Assembly. Only the NDP government has a plan to make, or, or party, has, uh, has made a plan to make university and college more affordable in Nova Scotia. For example, the NDP will soon introduce legislation that will eliminate tuition at Nova Scotia's community college. This would address a major funding gap for community college students where there are less support and programs to address student debts. So I asked the Premier, will he take the first step to making post-secondary education more affordable by supporting the NDP's effort to eliminate tuition at the Nova Scotia Community Colleges? Honourable Premier. I want to thank the Honourable Member for the question, Mr. Speaker. A question period is, as some of you know, the time when opposition MLAs ask questions to the Premier and Cabinet Ministers. It's one of the few times you're likely to find every sitting MLA in the House. Now, this is concerning when you know what we have heard from former MLAs, that most of them regard this time as the House of Assembly at its worst. The question you just heard, and the answer that follows, perfectly captures the first thing MLAs were talking about. Honorable Premier. I want to thank the Honorable Member for the question, Mr. Speaker. What the Honorable Member has not told the House or Nova Scotians is how he's going to pay for that, Mr. Speaker. The last time they were in power, they cut $65 million out of classroom across this province. Is that where you're going to find the money? The question began with a statement that said, Only our side can fix this. Your side is wrong. And the answer is basically, no, it's your side that's wrong. You had your chance. You didn't fix it. It's time to move on to the next question, and it's the leader of the official opposition, Jamie Bailey's turn to ask a question. But instead of getting to ask his question, this is what happens on the House floor. The Honorable Leader of the Official Opposition. It's unclear who that speaker is, but it's pretty clear what they're saying, that it's coming from the government side and that the remark is directed at Mr. Bellowow. We're just having fun. It's not all terrible. On the same day, a few moments later, the following exchange happened between the NDP education critic and the education minister from the Liberals. The Honorable Member for Truro, Bible Hill, Millbrook, Salmon River. And the critic begins by pointing out that in the minister's biography on the government's website, she's included that she's been a principal, a supervisor, but not a teacher, which she was. She closes with this related question. So my question for the minister is, does she agree that her government's business model for education means that teachers are forced to spend more time doing data collection than taking care of the diverse needs of students and doing what teachers do best? That's Lenore Zan, NDP education critic. MLA for Churro, Bible Hill, Millbrook, Sam River. It's a long name. Um, and here's Education Minister Karen Casey's full response. 
Minister of Education. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, and in response to the question, I'm really proud to say that I'm a teacher. You don't become a principal until you've been a teacher, and I would think people would understand that. However, uh, having said that, I do uh, want to say that we have, we will continue to listen. I think our budgets for the last four or three years have demonstrated that. For four years, there were budget cuts by the NDP. The member speaking sat on our hands and did nothing but support those budgets. Uh, Mr. Speaker, when uh, teachers were protesting, they went to her office. Order, and, please. Know, so it's a bit hard to hear what's happening here, but Lenorzan is saying, spin, 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 as the minister responds to the question. Order, please. The Honorable Member, uh, Minister of Education, has the floor. It's my understanding, Mr. Speaker. When Order, please. The Honorable Minister of Education has the floor. Mr. Speaker, it's... Order, please. The Honorable Minister of Education has the floor. And Mr. Speaker, it's my understanding that when teachers were protesting those cuts under the NDP government and they went to the member opposite's uh, office, she had not reported to work that day. The Honorable Member for Pictou Centre. Uh, Mr. Speaker, my question is for the uh, Minister of Education. Yeah, it's worth understanding that this kind of dialogue, the kind that MLAs remembered for years after they left politics, didn't come from one particular party or a single person in the assemblies of which they were a part. The kind of dialogue you just heard, and that former MLAs described to us, is truly a multi-partisan creation. If you spend enough time listening to the legislature and reading the transcripts of the debates, you'll find examples that will paint members of each party as both the target of this type of behavior and the instigator. And I remember, I've got so many funny anecdotes, you know, where this man comes to the door and pushes his wife aside, basically, and says, I don't believe in women and being politics. And we said, well, The third theme we heard a lot about in our conversations was one of exclusion. Which speaks to two groups, uh, female MLAs and MLAs from the African Nova Scotian community who have... Um, you know, make gains in electoral representation over the past 20 years, but are still s severely underrepresented in the House. Well, excuse me, sir, you're entitled to your views, but I wonder why? Well, I think she should be home looking after her kids. And we heard that there was kind of a background of sexism and racism um, in the House right well, actually, during Emily's career, right from their um, participation in the campaign up to actually serving in the House as well. When you were running, did you, I guess, experience any racism during the campaign? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Right off the gate. Even for County Council. Oh, yeah. Like, why in the name of God am I going to vote for you? I vote for you today and you'll rob me tomorrow. Bang. Okay. Have a good day. <laughs> and you would get those yeah. types of responses even up into the provincial campaign? Oh, yes. Yeah, the provincial campaign, they're more blatant, that's why. Sometimes we would just tease the opposition and all the women would sit in the front row just for fun, stuff like that. <laughs> uh, because the men could be pretty mean, actually. Um, so for me personally, I didn't like going into the cafeteria to eat 
because nobody would sit with me. The only person to ever come and sit with me from the opposition was John Hamm. He would come. If I was there by myself, he would, if there was no other, but nobody else from my party, uh, which is really kind of silly, but he would come and, and, and sit and we'd chat and that sort of thing, but the others wouldn't, right? Wow. Sometimes they would make underhanded racist remarks, right? But I wasn't prepared for that. To me, I had thought people were above that sort of thing, because come on, these are people who somebody voted for, <laughs> but they weren't above that, that's mm. for sure. You know, no, yeah, stuff like that. So you could feel it. You know, sometimes people would in across the, the aisle would would try to steer you down. Um, they wouldn't, you know, hassle me a lot openly, uh, but you could see that they were talking to each other, and and you know, they did that with all of us basically. But I just found it, you know, that the staring at me was. I didn't know what that was about. Was it just at you, or would they do it to other members? Well, I, I noticed a, a few of them that would just do it to me. And you might you could say, oh, well, these incidents were, you know, Nova Scotia politics is incredibly personal. These incidents were probably just part of the cut and thrust of politics in Nova Scotia. But the point is that these, um, these incidents uh, were remembered by the MLAs as racist and sexist. So when we talk about exclusion, there's the exclusion at the interpersonal level, the one that the people who face it feel when they take their place in the legislature. But there's also a kind of exclusion that happens by virtue of not being included in the legislature at all, or being severely underrepresented. You know who these groups are. They're the same groups that are consistently underrepresented in the halls of power and discriminated against in many places across Nova Scotia. Mi'kmaq and other indigenous people, people of color, immigrants and new Canadians, people living with disabilities, and members of the LGBTQ community. The final thing we looked at was the disconnect between what happens in public spaces and what happens in private spaces in Nova Scotia politics. Because I, I think uh, government and politics is a mystery to most people. It, we know that what goes on in the legislature is just for show. The real decisions are being made somewhere else. They're being made in other rooms, the premier's office, the, the cabinet room, their minister's offices. They're being made in office buildings around downtown Halifax. And what all of those rooms have in common is you're not allowed inside. Right? All the important decisions are being made somewhere else that you can't see. We managed to delve into and kind of get some insight into some of the places that are black boxes to Nova Scotians trying to look at these spaces like cabinet caucus and the premier's office that we as Nova Scotians don't usually get to see, but we managed to get some insight into it. I think in the cabinet it was basically, um, well, don't rock my boat and I won't rock your boat kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I need to get this through. My deputy's telling me this has to be done. You know, the department wants this by yesterday and you're asking me questions. Well, if you had read your goddamn stuff, you'd know that, you know, that was a question that someone should ask you. If it's, if it's, uh, and, and the other thing about cabinet is that it's not a vote. You don't vote in cabinet. Really? No, you don't vote in cabinet. How does it work? It's consensus. So if one minister stands up and says... Well, it's, it's uh, you agree. The government agrees. And and people often ask, well, why, why, why does a minister come out of a cabinet room and say... You know, why does everybody agree? Well, the reason why is 
the process is that you leave that room with uh, coming to an agreement. Which means that a lot of stuff is there because the law requires that it go to cabinet. So a lot of it, it's, people have no idea, like a lot of the cabinet agenda is pure formality. Something that has to go to cabinet, be approved by cabinet, and the cabinet ministers don't read it, they don't understand it, they couldn't care less. It just It is a requirement that it go through the cabinet. And that, that would describe the vast majority of the stuff on the cabinet agenda. So those are the themes. Powerlessness, dysfunction, exclusion, and the public and private divide. Of course, there are other things that came up in our interviews too. For now, let me draw you a roadmap. It's a map of the life cycle of an MLA, and it also serves as a guide for where we're going with this podcast. The roadmap starts just before the MLA enters electoral politics, and it ends sometime after that, when the exit interview took place. Now, no two members of the legislature experience elected office in the same way, but the signposts along the way are fairly common. First, they all decide to seek their party's nomination. They all win the nomination. They all get elected in the general election. Then there's a fork in the road. Some of the people who are elected make it into government, and some people don't. For those who make it into government, there's another fork. Some of them make it into cabinet and become a minister of something, and some people don't. Back to the first fork in the road. If your party doesn't win, you sit on the opposition side of the house, and you become a critic for something. Maybe you repeat the cycle. If you run in another election and win, maybe you end up on the opposite side of the house. Or maybe you stay right where you are. The rest of your time is an MLA. The one exception to this experience is that of the party leader, which we'll explore separately from all of this. And eventually, everybody leaves politics. Some people make that choice on their own, while for others, it's a decision that gets made for them, by us, the voters. That's it. End of roadmap. For the ex-MLAs we spoke with, that's what they call themselves, by the way. There's an association, they meet in the legislature a few times a year. Anyways, for those MLAs, anywhere from a few months to many years after they left politics, they got a phone call or an email from myself or Louise, asking them to sit down for an next interview about their time in public life. In each episode of this podcast, we're going to explore one part of the life and experience of an MLA, starting at the beginning and working our way to the end of that roadmap. Every now and then we'll step out of the timeline and dedicate an episode to explore a topic or a question that doesn't really fit anywhere on the map, but is still important. Over the course of the next year, we'll share the private stories about public life in Nova Scotia. We hope you'll join us along the way. Thank you for tuning in to the first episode of the Offscript Podcast. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe in iTunes or wherever it is you keep your podcasts. You can stream all of our podcasts from offscript.ca. Do us another favor and share it with friends you think might be interested. Offscript is produced by Springtide, and this podcast is one of a handful of products we're working on to help Nova Scotians learn about and better engage with our politics. In last week's podcast, we went way off script by talking about the American presidential election. We also told you about an event we're planning to talk about where we go from here as Nova Scotians and Canadians in the aftermath of an election that, despite happening in another country, has impacted many of us. If you're in Halifax next Thursday, November 24th, we invite you to join us for Making Sense of Political Heartbreak, a civic dialogue. 
It starts at 6.30 p.m. at the Big Mar Friendship Center, and it'll be a participatory conversation that will be kicked off by a few speakers. It's going to be hosted by Sarah Thompson, who uses the deep democracy method of holding conversation, challenging, uncomfortable, and transformative way of working through tough topics. We hope you'll join us, and we do ask that you RSVP at our website, springtagcollective.ca. This episode of Offscript was written and produced by Louise Cockrum, Sandra Hennebaum, and me, Mark Coffin, and many volunteer transcribers. The theme music you've heard in this podcast comes from Josh Spacek at Needledrop.co, and the other music you heard comes from Kevin McLeod at Incompetech. We extend our thanks to Jeremy Ackerman and the Nova Scotia Association of XMLAs for their help in connecting us with former MLAs and all those MLAs who participated in interviews for the project. Offscript is made possible with funding we got from the Democracy 250 Youth Engagement Legacy Trust. That funding got us started, but in order to keep it going and keep producing better, longer, higher quality podcasts, we need support from people like you. You go to the website, offscript.ca slash donate to make a contribution. We're talking small amounts, $3, $5, $8 a month, whatever you can afford and what you think this is worth. Anybody who donates more than 25 bucks in the run of a year is eligible for a tax receipt because Springtide Collective is a charity. That's it. 